welcome back to the She Illuminates the World podcast. Today, I am talking to you, Erin Bennett, about the epigenetics of motherhood and conception and all of the science that goes on in our bodies before we are able to give birth. So I'm so excited to have Erin here on the show. Erin is coming in from Mexico. Um, Again, I love talking to people that are just all over the world and how this work applies to all of us everywhere all the time. So we are going to get right in. So Erin, I would love for you to share with, with all of us listening a little bit about you and the work that you do and your journey to getting where you are now. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, So I have founded a company called Wellborn, and our focus is exclusively on this period shortly before conception when there is really a lot of untapped power in terms of how we affect not only the lives of that child that is conceived, but according to animal studies and some other unintentional human studies for it looks like at this point up to two generations. And so uh, it's a pretty narrow window and and we've kind of looked at it from a very multidisciplinary way. We have anthropologists, we have epigeneticists, we have medical doctors, we have toxicologists. And so it's been really fun to just see how all of this plays in together in terms of like knowing what we do before conception can have a lot of impact down the line. And so in terms of how I got here, Let's see. So by training, I am a lawyer and I have been practicing in the food space and intellectual property space for quite a while. But I had my first child about 11 years ago. And around that time, I noticed that in the law firm where I was working in San Francisco, there were a lot of women who were very healthy. And yet it seemed to be really challenging for them to get pregnant. And it really didn't make sense to me. So it's sort of the intersection of me getting pregnant with my daughter and then seeing these other women and not really understanding because they were doing everything right that we were told to do. And yet it wasn't working how they had imagined that it would work. And so I just started to do a lot of my own research, you know, in my free time in all these different issues. And it came across this idea that a lot of traditional tribes across different continents had preconception practices that they had both the man and the woman do. And it sort of occurred to me that across all of these practices, there were a lot of commonalities. And so that's pretty much the first thing that piqued my interest in this. And then I started to dive into the modern medical research and to see like, do these traditional practices align with um, modern medical research? And the answer was yes, absolutely. And, and, And then from there, I sort of had this feeling of like, why is all of this information stuck and you know stagnating in these medical journals and we as consumers really have no idea right our doctors tell us eat better and exercise that's not super helpful what is what does that mean right in the context of getting pregnant and so um you know after practicing law i actually decided that it was time to take this interest that i've been independently researching and then researching with my own um, team of researchers and make it an actual company and that's how Wellborn was born, and now we're working with women or people with ovaries to educate them on the power of the preconception period. I love how you took your own journey um, and did your own research and realized like there was this this gap between women doing it right and then what we're actually meant to be doing, and then turned it into your own company. I think that's just so incredible. 
And I would love for you to just share, what did you find? Like, what are, what are we not hearing? Like, we all think that we're doing it right. And there's these missing pieces. So what, what did you find in that research? Mm, so much, so many gems. <laughs> so, you know, I think one thing that maybe we don't have top of mind is this idea that from an evolutionary perspective, we were not designed as humans to necessarily optimize our longevity, not to optimize how long we live, also not to optimize health. We are really here for one reason, to reproduce. And so from an evolutionary perspective, once we've reproduced, and if those offspring are then able to reproduce, we have been successful. And so that coupled with this other idea that we were fat scavengers, like that's who we were, right? Like, and so we were pretty much always obsessed with weight, right? As we are now and we're like, oh my gosh, this is so pathological, but we were obsessed with weight and fat then for a different reason, which is because we were almost in a, always in a scarcity situation, right? We were not having three square meals a day. We didn't know when we would hunt the next and kill the next woolly mammoth and have enough food to last us for a while. So we really are, our survival depended on scavenging for food and especially nutrient dense food. And that's something that we don't talk about a lot, but if you look in any medical journal or you know any chapter in a, a textbook about human reproduction, you will consistently find a set of vitamins and minerals and nutrients. And interestingly, almost all of them come from animal-based foods or at least are best absorbed in animal-based foods, which of course today is a sort of controversial thing to say. And yet, there is this sort of inconvenient truth, so to speak, that that is for two and a half million years, how we evolved, how our bodies were accustomed to reproducing. And, you know, if you look at even the last 50 years when conventional food or industrial food has become more of a thing, that's only 0.0025% of human history, right? And so we are, our biology is still ancient and yet we're living these modern lives. And so there's sort of a, we haven't caught up, like our bodies still think we might as well be in the Paleolithic period. Yeah. And so the real key is, you know, the real starting place for healthy reproduction is giving your body enough nutrients because it's a big investment for your body to invest in having a baby. And it's not something it's going to do unless most of the other really essential things that keep you alive are in place. like you know, basic metabolic rate or, you know, the energy it takes to just like get you up and walking and getting through a day or making sure you have enough fat. You know, it, it's, it's pretty intelligent. It, it, it wants to make a good investment. And, and, and to your work, right, there's this tension here because the patriarchy or patriarchal diet culture tells us that we should be really thin. And yet two or two and a half million years of human history says, no, no, you need enough fat on your body, which tells your body that there's long-term, there's going to be enough nutrients for the baby, but you also need enough energy in the day-to-day. -day. You need to be consuming enough energy in the day-to-day. -day. And, and there's a real tension there. Yeah, and I, I love that you just brought that up because from my own experience, I struggled with an eating disorder. And I know that when women struggle with compulsive like food restrictions, the first thing to go is our menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I cut out fat 
because I was doing Weight Watchers and I saw there was like 60 calories in one teaspoon of oil. So why would I want to waste my calories on that? And so what ended up happening was I really cut out fat. And if you probably looked at what I was eating, it was very low to no fat diet. And I lost my menstrual cycle. I had low bone mineral density. So, I mean, I was 15 at the time, so I wasn't trying to conceive, but like this, it makes sense that women who are struggling with disordered eating because of all these messages we're getting from diet culture that we need to lose weight. We need to be smaller. Um, they can't have a baby. It makes, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And, and it's this sort of this very, this very deep ancient wisdom that does live within the female body, right? It's, it's actually, mm-hmm. in a way, it's quite intelligent and it's quite benevolent because if, if, for example, in your situation, which is just like, you know, heartbreaking to hear, it's your body is saying like, no, no, we're having a really hard time just keeping you going right now. Like mm-hmm. this is, it, it would potentially be dangerous for you right? And for the baby, if you were going to, to share those resources at that time with yourself and with a baby, right? And so it's sort of, it hits the pause button. And again, I think another place where we really go wrong, which is, is related to diet culture, is this idea that fertility is binary. You're either fertile or you're infertile. I mean, we do such a disservice to women when we're like labeling them infertile, when fertility is like anything else that turns on and off, right? It's constantly fluctuating. And so sure, maybe for a time it's turned off because your body has this innate wisdom, but it can absolutely be turned back on, right? And so it's, there's a constant conversation between you and your body, you know, what you're putting into it. it, There's so much intelligence, you know, as an example, when you, when an egg is maturing in the follicle, there's fluid around it. So the follicular fluid has all sorts of information. It's sort of it's sort of the body's crystal ball to the outside world. It shows how much cortisol, you know, as a proxy for stress, how much of various nutrients do you have, you know, how much food is available. And it will make real-time changes to the egg to try to adapt for the child that will become to the real outside world, right? And so again, this it's so fluid, it's so intelligent, right? It's, de- it's definitely not you're an infertile person or you're a fertile push- person. Yeah. And I, I would love to talk more about the cortisol effect and the stress effect, because I also see women that are like eating all the foods and like have the perfect diet and they still can't conceive. And the impact of like the stress, if the mom is under stress, like a lot of times the body's innate wisdom will reject um, the egg from, from fertilizing. I would love for you to share a little bit more about that stress impact um, and maybe a little bit about the epigenetics or the trauma that takes place. Right, yeah. And, and the thing that's sort of amazing and continually fascinating for me about fertility is that you know, it's certainly one of these things that we don't know everything, right? We think mm-hmm. that we're, we're learning more and more about it, but there's still this X factor, right? Because you know, if, if you look at a, a regular bell curve, for most people, there are these sets of, you know, practices that will support fertility and conception. But there are also people at the outer edges of the curve who might be extremely stressed or eating extremely poor diets. And yet, for whatever reason, they're able to conceive. So, you know, we're doing, right, the, best, right. <laughs> we're doing the best that we can. And, and we're looking in the middle of the curve. But, but to your point, I mean, on, on the idea of epigenetics, 
for, for those of us who maybe haven't been exposed to it so much. So the idea is the epi is Greek for on top of or in addition to. So we have our regular genes in our DNA that we're, we're very used to talking about. And of course those are passed on and you know each of us has our own unique DNA. And then the idea of epigenetics is while that underlying DNA doesn't change, based on what we do in our lives, our environment can turn on or turn off the genes that we have. So we might have been carrying with us for you know, all of our history, for millions of years, we might've been carrying a gene that predisposes us to type two diabetes, except that our lifestyles were such that it didn't turn on the type two diabetes gene. So no one in our history ever had it. But now that we are in an environment, for example, where we have almost too many calories, too much food, which is really a rare occurrence in human history, all of a sudden that gene that you may have been carrying the whole time, now it's turned on, right? And so epigenetics is this idea that our genes will be either switched on or switched off based on what we're actually doing. And the real power of the period right before conception and, and right after is that like I'm talking about, both the man's genetic material, the sperm and the egg are making these real-time changes, turning on and turning off genes, and then continuing to do that in the first weeks of pregnancy when all of the major bodily systems are being formed. And those genes that are turned on and turned off, there are only a few cells, right? Like within the first five days, there are like a, a, a few hundred cells. Those changes will will follow and carry out into all of the other cells that makes the newborn baby, 25 trillion cells by the time you have a newborn baby. And so this idea that we, there are only a few cells, it's a very powerful period because what we're doing then carries on at least to the whole life of that child and research indicates up until that child's grandchildren. So up to three generations, those is what we're seeing so far. So it's really a period of untapped power. Um, and it, it's you know admittedly also a period of responsibility. Yeah, I love that you just shed on like that. It goes all the way until that that child's grandchildren. Right. Um, and I know like from, from my own experience of looking back at like my parents and my grandparents um, and their genetics and their adaptations and feeling like I'm carrying some of the traumatic adaptations or like the survival, you could say survival right. adaptations. Um, and I know Erin, you shared with me and I've heard this a couple of times now, like, when when grandma is pregnant with mom you are an egg <laughs> within right. mom and so yeah can you speak more to that absolutely so it, it's it's sort of powerful to just imagine that when your grandmother was pregnant with your mother your mother in the very first months of her existence and weeks even her eggs are forming and are literally within your grandmother's body you're within your mother's body which is being housed and homed in your grandmother's body right and so you know, there's this idea, we say we are what we eat, but but another way of putting it in light of this epigenetics research is perhaps you are what your grandmother ate or what she did or what she carried um, in many ways, right? That flows down to you. And, and, and you're speaking of trauma. I mean, we've always sort of had this understand, understanding that trauma is inherited, right? Because if your grandparents had a really traumatic experience, maybe that would change the way that they parented or how available they were to in, and how present they were with children. But now what we're seeing is that those traumatic experiences are also carried within the epigenome as well. And so these are being inherited in an epigenetic way in the same way that a nutrient deficiency or even a caloric deficiency as we've seen in some prior famines 
is carrying, appears to be carried down at least three generations. And so, you know, there's a study that we talk about a lot of cherry blossoms mm -hmm. and it was done on animals and they, the, the mice or the rats were in the environment and the smell of cherry blossoms was piped in and they got an electric shock, right? So this was a traumatic experience. And then they had the next generation of mice and they would, you know, pump in the smell of cherry blossoms into the environment, except there was no shock. And those mice, even though they had actually never experienced a trauma associated with cherry blossoms, had a, a stress response, a cortisol response. And they found that the same thing happened with the subsequent generation. So the grandchildren of the initial generation who received the electric shocks upon smelling the cherry blossoms. So having never actually been hurt by cherry blossoms, these children and grandchildren still had a physiological response, which suggests that it's a mechanism that's more than just, you know, nurture, that it's actually being inherited in a very different way. I'm so glad you brought up the cherry blossom study because so many of our ancestors had traumatic experiences. And I know like I, I grew up in the affluent suburbs of New York. Um, I don't have trauma. How could I possibly have trauma? And yet I struggled with food, struggled with my body. I had an eating disorder and it was so difficult for me to understand where it was coming from. And through my own learning, I realized is a, we inherit trauma and a lot of our ancestors, I mean, our grandparents, I mean, I have three grandparents that are still alive. We're living in these traumatic environments. There's wars happening. I'm Jewish, the Holocaust, um, right. uh, survival. I mean, women in general, it was never safe to be a woman and there were real repercussions. You know, you ask for what you want, you're in touch with your desire and you could be killed. <laughs> Um, her burned at the stake. And that was something that truly did happen. And, you know, we're not being killed and burned at the stake or hung anymore, but those adaptations are still within our DNA. Right, right. I mean, and exactly like this trauma is being passed down in many ways. And now this recent with the epigenetics research, we're seeing it's actually on a genetic level as well, right? It's not, it doesn't just live in the psyche and in, in, you know, the way that we parent and nurture, it is actually woven into our DNA. It's very real. Yeah. I'm curious if you've seen anything on the male side, because we're always talking about women, 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 but we're like, what about the guys? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And this is sort of a, an area of research that's been getting more focus in recent years. And, you know, I think in many cultures, this idea, even before we understood fertility as well as we do now, there was this idea that if a woman couldn't get pregnant, it was absolutely her fault. She clearly was doing something wrong. And the modern research is saying, well, it could be the woman, but it absolutely could be the man. And it's getting you know, a lot of research and the same concepts are applying is that in the seminal fluid, the fluid around semen production, the same sort of messages and adaptations are going on. And so that is as important in that conception period as what the mother is doing. And sure, in the actual, the uterine environment, that's going to have its own effects on the child. But when we're talking about the combination of DNA and the combination of epigenetics, what the man does is absolutely as important as the woman. And in fact, it's very sad, but the, the long-term longitudinal studies that are coming out about men's sperm health is that men's sperm parameters pretty much world, worldwide are plummeting fast and consistently since around the 1940s, such that 
If the numbers continue to decrease at the same rate, the average man will be clinically infertile by about 2060. Wow. And so sperm matter is the first point a lot. And also sperm quality is, is, is really at risk right now. And, and that will have serious downstream effects for the sort of epigenetic things that we're talking about. So again, same things, exposure to toxins, nutrient deficiencies, caloric deficiencies, right? If the body senses that a famine is coming, even if pregnancy happens, they're going to down, it's going to downgrade the metabolism because it thinks, okay, I need to slow down digestion. I need to extract more from the food that is eaten because this child will be born into an environment of scarcity, right? There's so much intelligence, but what happens when the child is born into an environment of abundance, which is what we're in now, right? We have caloric abundance, you know, nutrient depletion, but caloric abundance. And what happens when the metabolism is slowed down because the body's expecting a famine? Well, you will get higher levels of obesity and type two diabetes and, and other things in those children, but that can come from the mother's side or the father's side. It's absolutely not just the mother, right? And, and one could posit that that's, that's a bit of the patriarchy at play in those old notions that it all comes down to the mother. Right, right. And I feel like even, even in myself, I'm always thinking like, okay, mom, 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 mom. <laughs> then right. what about dad? <laughs> that plays right. a role too. Pregnancy, conception, and, and the birthing of a baby in, in some ways on the surface appear to be mother's work, but is absolutely shared work. And the effects and the contribution of the man, you know, you'll hear people joke and say, oh, I just had to contribute for five minutes and then it's all on the woman. And, and that couldn't be less accurate, right? I mean, the effects of what the father is contributing, as, as we've talked about, appear to last at least three generations. And so that's wow. very Yeah, and that's a conversation that I have not had. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's very real. And it's a shift in how we talk about pregnancy and conception. And, you know, it's it's easy to say this is all women's work and it's mm -hmm. really not, right? Right, we and need to be doing it together. Absolutely. And, that, and that's why it is so interesting to observe these traditional cultures who had practices, very specific practices for both the man and the woman. It was accepted that they would both do them together because there was some sort of a wisdom that they both mattered equally. And mm -hmm. so we've, we've lost that in recent times, right? We've, we've assigned all of the work to the women if we do it at all, right? We spend more time planning our weddings than we do planning our conceptions. It's true. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a shift in perspective, but no, this is not all on the women. Yeah. So what, what would you recommend, um, for women that are listening? Like what, what, where do you get started? How do you get started? Um, do you have any words of wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the very, the, the, the first place to start is if we just want to start with, with basic, um, everyday actions is for one, and this is, this is um, related to your work as well, but start to actually connect with what foods sound good. You know, if you can create this idea of a universe of all the whole foods that exist, and you know, that's, that's really the only 
single human diet is whole foods. And then within that, there are infinite number of variations of diets that work for different populations and different individuals, right? Like the best diet in the world is the diet that works for your body. Yes. But, but we can all admit that within a universe of whole foods, and especially if we're talking about reproduction, we can certainly acknowledge that, you know, for the vast majority of human history, as we talked about before, all but the last 0.0025% of human history, humans have been reproducing on whole foods. And so the first place that I encourage women to start is if you have this universe of whole foods, what actually sounds good? Like try to strip away what we've been told we should or shouldn't eat, right? And for a lot of women, things that come up are things like steak and burgers and things that for so long, you know, especially if you grew up in the the 80s and the low fat era that we feel, and, and to your point, you refer to this, but we feel very, we're very fat phobic, but there's wisdom in there, right? In, in eating a burger or a steak, there are many of the nutrients that are essential for reproduction. And I should note that somewhere in the range of 75% to 90% of women, even in Western countries are deplete in almost all of the nutrients that are essential for reproduction. And so wow. we are in a very privileged, affluent culture, and yet most of us are nutritionally deplete in the very nutrients that we need to successfully reproduce. So that's the best starting point. And then from there, really start to open your eyes to nutrient density, right? And so something you might eat something that has plenty of calories, but it really has no nutrients in it. They're two separate issues. And the body wants nutrients to reproduce. I mean, think about it, you're building a house effectively. You want lots of materials. You want high quality materials. You want to make sure that you can, you can add in all of the details that are necessary to make it small. If you, if you're missing major pieces, you know, if all you have are two, two by fours, but you don't have sheetrock, or if you don't have a roof, like there are going to be some, some real um, blind spots, so to speak. And so again, this is what the body is used to. So start to think about nutrient density and often, like I said, this comes in animal products. Most of these traditional cultures had sacred fertility foods. And while they were not all the same, the one thing that they had in common was the amount of nutrients in a small amount of food. Mm. And so, you know, it varied by culture, but that was the real focus. Yeah. And I think also like the body knows this, Absolutely. like the body knows, like you, the first thing you said was, what does my body want? Right. Uh, and our bodies actually, they have this wisdom of knowing what foods they want and need in order to sustain health. And we're so programmed by diet culture, by the media of eat this, not that, should, my least favorite wor word in the world, should, should, should. Every time you're shitting yourself, it's shame, um, according to who, right? Who <laughs> said this? But you know, really like taking a moment to just like take a step back and like, what do I actually want? And right. I, this is like <laughs> so much easier said than done. It's true, but exact what you're saying is exactly on point. And it's interesting because in my work as a food lawyer, right, we see that so much effort goes into persuading people to eat certain things. And it's sort of a cynical view, but it's based on my work is that often the interests are how do we get people to buy more of this food because it's a very high profit food for us, right? The, the fact that the FDA has defined the word healthy and your ability to put it on a, a box and there are certain nutrient requirements that have to be met to use the word healthy, 
But the unfortunate part is that we see this and, and we think it's healthy, but in fact, it's exactly the opposite of healthy. You know, just by way of example, you can use the term healthy, which was defined in the, the height of the low fat era, and you can have tons and tons of sugar in a product and it can be labeled healthy because it's all based on the absence of fat. You know, a lot of companies that sell like kind, the, the, the snack bars had to petition the FDA to use the word healthy and defend against their use of the word healthy because, because nuts have so much fat that under this very outdated definition, they are unhealthy, right? And so to your point, we have been inundated with so much advertising and persuasion on the point of what food should we eat that we've gotten very out of touch with what do we actually want to eat? What feels good to eat? When do we feel satiated? When do we feel nourished, right? Like these are not things that we often think about in this era. Instead, it's like, what's healthy? Well, what's healthy is a definition that's created by a federal agency. Does that mean it's good for us? Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've all, or I really don't like the word healthy, to be honest, um, because what is healthy? And even like since I was in college and I was doing presentations on body image and what is healthy, what does that even mean? And it, you're so right. It's different for everybody and everybody's body. And like, there's one thing like General Mills can tell us like this product is healthy, but I don't know. Um, is that right for me? Not necessarily. Yeah. And I, I think it's a real sign for us that we have we have given something away, something away on, on what we know about our own bodies when we look to outsiders to yeah. tell us what's going to nourish us and make us feel good, right? We've, we've lost something that maybe we had before. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Claire Davis in, I believe in the 1930s, but she did an experiment with orphans, which of course we could not do now for ethical reasons, but she gave them um, these, these young toddler orphans an array of foods at every mealtime. They were all whole foods and they varied from things like cod liver oil and beef and orange juice and salt and all these different foods. And she gave them to them for, I, I don't know, let's say several months. And all of the children chose different foods and would eat ones in high, volume until they cured certain ailments. You know, one child drank cod liver oil, which is incredibly nutrient dense until he cured his rickets. Another wow. did the same with orange juice because this child had scurvy. And, you know, there's, there's something there, right? With this intuitive knowing on, of what we need. And yet we have outsourced that to, to often to corporations who truly, yeah. and again, I can say that's confidently based on my work, do not have our best interests in mind. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are. And it goes beyond the food. Uh, we are looking to external sources about pretty much everything. How much money should I make? What, what job should I hold? Um, you know, a body image, what should I look like? What should I eat? And we're so disconnected because we're trying to look for somebody else to tell us who and what we should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, when the real question, and, and as you said before, is much harder in practice, but is what do I want? What makes me feel good? Right. And, and mm -hmm. there's a, a, a constant counterforce of what society wants for us, what society right. wants us to be, what other people want us to be, what our friends want us to be. And it's, it, it takes a lot of energy to resist that and to have the the courage essentially to stand in what you want 
and what feels good for you. Yeah. And, and really that's, that's so related when, when we're talking about conception, that is such an essential, essential piece for becoming a mother because you are constantly inundated with what you should do. Again, it's a big business and I'm not suggesting that everyone has only profit in mind, but that's definitely a factor. And so, you know, it is an important skill to be able to say, what do I need? What does my child need? Right? Not what does society want me to do as a mother? Right. Right. Which is much easier said than done. And just how do you help people with that? And I know that you have your own business and how do you help people? How can people start to get help so that they can implement this? I mean, I think that the the very first step is just starting to see it, right? And seeing is the first step because we have all been in this for our whole lives. And so it just feels very new. The awareness, yeah. Right? And and so when you start to see, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, right? Like that's the process of starting to wake up to these messages, which in some ways might be directed in your best interest and also might not be, right? So the first step is awareness. And then the counter to that is not only awareness of what's happening extrinsically, but what is happening intrinsically. Like that opening awareness of what do I want? You know, that that can be very raw for a lot of people. A lot of us have just shut that down in exchange for the shoulds. Because in many ways, very understandably, no judgment, should it, shoulds are safer. Right. If we mm-hmm. just step in line to what culture in general yeah. wants us to do, that insulates us from a lot of risk and danger. It is it is scary to step out. And so it's awareness in both sides. And then, you know, stepping, you need to step out with safety, right? You have to have the capacity to step out of what society wants, if that's what actually works for you. You need to have different ways of emotional safety in place before you do that. And so it's that's really where you start, but it's, it's just a ret- it's a return to awareness and it's a return to self, right? Right. And with the safety comes with support and accountability right. of not doing this alone. No, this is, this is not <laughs> solitary work. Um, and, and, it, and essentially that's how women have done this work for years and is with other women, right? I mean, yeah that's humans are social beings in, you know, more tribal situations. You're your grandmothers, your aunts, you know, your sisters, everyone was near you, right? This was never work that we were doing in isolation, which we are today, and especially in light of, of the pandemic. You know, right, all of this right. work is sadly very solitary, and that's not evolutionarily appropriate. Right. We need to be healing in community and with each other because it's not easy. And it's so patriarchal of I can do it alone. I can figure it out on my own. And that's another like level of awareness of that too. Of, okay. Like how can I support and nourish myself with like-minded people? Right. I, I am not weak because I, I do better with others. Right. right. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of patriarchal programming. And in fact, you were designed to do it with others. You were designed to do it with the support of other people, especially other women. Yeah. Amazing. Well, how can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more? Absolutely. So our website is bbewellborn.com and the same on Instagram. And yeah, those are the best ways to get in touch. Amazing. Erin, anything else that you'd like to share? Any last words of wisdom that are coming through? 
mm. that you want to leave our audience with? I just would really like to enforce the idea that fertility is absolutely um, flowing all the time. It's not a switch that's that's altogether off or altogether on. So, you know, I think especially if you look at modern medicine and certain diagnoses, they can be very damaging. For example, unexplained infertility is one and it sort of leaves women with this feeling of there's something so wrong with me that even, you know, this, this medical paradigm doesn't know what's happening. And I would invite a different view, which is, you know, for example, a diagnosis of unexplained infertility is simply an admission that one type of medicine, one medical philosophy doesn't understand your body, but in no way is that is that a mark that you are not fertile or that you could not be fertile again. This is the, the cyclicality of it is the natural way of things. Yeah. And we didn't even get into the timeline of the structure <laughs> of <laughs> you need to have a child by this point in your oh, lifetime. Yeah. Um, oh, we didn't More even shoulds. get to that. <laughs> More sh- Always shoulds. Yeah. Oh, and I can't even tell you how many people I hear say that of, oh my gosh, like I need to be engaged and married by X date so I can have kids by this date and a house by this date. Oh goodness, that's so stressful. (laughs) Yeah, it's stressful just talking about it. Um, But yeah, like fertility, it's not black and white and like nothing is black and white. (laughs) No, I mean, you know, and if you think about it, every single year has 25% that's winter. There is effectively no fertility in winter for any plants, right? It's literally everything is dormant. It is, it is so fundamental to the way of nature to have periods of non-fertility so that you can build the strength to then be very fertile in the spring and summer, right? Like fall right. and winter are more non-fertile times and spring and summer are fertile. That, that's, that's a pretty much 50-50 divide. Like it's incredibly normal to have periods of on and periods of off when it comes to fertility. There's right. there's really nothing pathological about it. And I feel like that doesn't do women a, a service to tell them that you're infertile. That's, that's, you know, it would be better to say right now you are not ovulating, but we have no idea what the hell you'll be doing next month. Right, right. And I mean, that was such a big aha for me was how in tune our bodies are with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're so structured, but realizing like the menstrual cycle and the phases of the menstrual cycle are so similar to the seasons, you Absolutely. know, of menstruation and winter and then like uh, luteal and harvest and like fall. And like, that was something I very recently learned about. Right. It, it's actually within us. We live that as well. And so, you know, we, we have to remember that that, that is actually the way of things. And um, again, turning inward rather than relying on third parties always for knowledge about our own bodies. Amazing. Well, thank you, Erin. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everybody who is listening and we will see you next time. So much fun. Thanks so much, Jocelyn.